Welcome to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. And I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, who is my co-host and fellow colleagues at the School of Public Service at Boise State, Jackie Kettler and Jen Schneider. Um, we have a, another exciting show for you this week, and I think the theme is environmental issues. Um, and uh, to start that off, there's a, a been a huge pretty important report on climate change that has come out this week that I, I think Jen's going to take the lead in explaining this because she understands it so much better than I do. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I um, over Thanksgiving week took sort of a media diet, which Jackie, you and I have talked about on the show before how important it is to do that occasionally. And so I was just deleting en masse all of the notification emails I get from newspapers and things like that every day. And then I came came back to the office on Monday. Uh, and it turns out that the news didn't get any better while I was gone, unfortunately. And there wasn't just one huge climate change report that came out. There were three. So lots and lots of climate change news these last few weeks. So just to recap, uh, the United Nations Environmental Program released a report And that's a group that sort of keeps track of whether or not we are staying on track with things like the Paris Climate Accords. And unfortunately, the world is receiving a failing grade um, in terms of being able to keep our emissions um, to the levels promised by that climate accord. So unfortunately, that's some bad news. And then the IPCC report, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that was released several weeks ago, received a lot of media coverage Um, And for the first time, I think scientists who write that report painted a very apocalyptic picture. They've been critiqued over the last few decades for using sort of more moderate, very scientific language that accounts for a lot of uncertainty for things that they don't know about climate change and its effects. And this time they were much bolder and I think more severe when predict making predictions about the future. Do you think that approach happened because they are increasingly confident and there's less question or because they recognize the previous approaches have not been successful in pushing action? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think people who are more skeptical of the IPCC and of climate scientists in general have really framed it or spun it as a a more political framing. Um, But if you look at the report itself, it's meant to convey increasing confidence in the scientific results. And then the third report um, that made a huge uh, splash uh, days after it came out, really, which you referenced, Luke, was the fourth national climate assessment. And this is our own government's report. A bunch of scientific agencies get together and report on what they know about climate change. Uh, This came out on Black Friday, and critics of the Trump administration said that it was released on that, which is sort of a notoriously slow news day, so as not to get much attention. Uh, but folks paying attention to environmental news did end up picking it up. And, oh man, some dark news in that as well. So projections that by 2100, we're seeing hundreds of billions of dollars in losses to the American economy. Lots of bad news about food production. It's gonna be a lot harder to grow food. Food's gonna become much more expensive in the United States. And then um, we were sharing articles among the three of us about the impacts on health. Any any of those results sort of stick out to you too as you were reading? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just incredibly concerning to see. Like, I mean, as someone who just kind of reads every once in a while to see all of just the catastrophic possibilities, especially with health um, and, and part of that connected into food and, you know, any... Oh, man. (laughs) Food insecurity. There we go. Um, But also just how the changing climate and natural disasters and other things can impact us. Yeah. Another piece that they mentioned in that report, they talked quite a bit about air quality. And I know we've had Jen Pierce, who's a wildfire expert on the show before. And so as wildfires continue, as we continue to burn more coal and release fine particulates into the air. As it gets warmer, we're going to see dramatically decreased air quality moving forward. And air quality is something that you've looked at a lot in your research, Luke. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I I think the report um, took a very holistic approach. And I I think when we use the term climate change and the more antiquated term global warming, people just think, oh, like the world's getting warmer. Like, what does that matter? But I, I mean, I, I think the one of the key takeaways here is this is a holistic change in an environment and ecosystems. And that plays out in a lot of different ways. Um, and so you can think about everything that happens outdoors, everything that happens in a natural sense is going to change in one way or the other. Um, and so those are devastating in a lot of ways. Uh, as Jackie pointed out earlier, and it was one of those things that I always was like, God, when I, I read it the first time, <laughs> was the snakes uh, in Florida. Uh, They were just basically saying that, like, all right, so if you read this report, like, the southeast is going to run into some problems. Like, basically everything, every one of the points made in this report was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be worse in the southeast. Um, And so that was kind of uh, scary. But Which is also, if you look at climate skeptic maps, where you see most climate skepticism in the country is in the southeast, ironically. Yeah, and again, uh, uh, that's something that I did not fall, like, uh, again, being from the southeast, that I uh, did not overlook is is the irony there. But certainly, like, a... the invade like the Burmese pythons and all these other invasions of species in the in South Florida or whatever. And they're just as it gets warmer, they're going to move farther and farther north until they just take over the South. And so that those kind of things just stuck out to me about how this is just going to be a, a wholesale change in ecosystems. Yeah, I think that interconnectedness is important to remember, especially as we think about how do we start to address these issues. It does remind me of maybe like a year ago, the New York Times or someone did like where to live as climate change gets worse, and so it was like basically like Colorado here in Idaho, the places where we'll still be okay, even while like the Southeast just struggles with all these major issues. Yeah, it does bring to mind sort of those cinematic scenes like the Mad Max landscapes and things like what what's what will survival be like in those coming decades with snakes everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, even if you aren't too worried about huge pythons where you live, you should be thinking about things like species diversity. Um, the report also talked a lot about the rise in disease carrying bugs, for example. We've seen things like the Zika virus, which has been very devastating um, in parts of the world, including in um, southern part of this country. Um, And so um, the one thing that I thought was interesting about the report is they talked a lot about losses in productivity and impacts to mental health. And so if we're starting to see increases in disease and temperatures are getting hotter and hotter, you're going to see a lot of um, impacts on how people are feeling about their lives and about their um, ability to sort of fight off challenges to mental and physical health. I thought that was an interesting piece. Well, I thought it was 
a good framing exercise and putting these in economic terms, particularly with lost productivity. And uh, they started doing this with assessments of the Clean Air Act, uh, I mean, decades ago, where they didn't just say, oh, wait, these are the illnesses, but this is actually what lost production. This is how it will hurt our economy. Uh, and I think that's very interesting, but it also is important is not just going, okay, here's what it looks like in a natural sense, but these are the real impacts it'll have on us and connecting it to things that even if you don't really care about the environment and you just care about the economy and money, like you, this report says like it's going to cost a lot of money for this path to continue. And so I think putting it in those terms makes it a lot harder to ignore for, I mean, people across the political spectrum. One piece that I thought of could have been emphasized further is the um, scope and impact of migration, not not even just thinking about immigration across our borders, but migration between parts of the country to other parts and the impacts that's going to have on cities, mid-sized cities, large cities, and quality of life in those cities, services, health. Well, we've talked about, I mean, like, you know, here in the Mountain West and a lot of housing issues where even people who've lived for a long time now can't afford. And so that could be very concerning if there's a lot of population movement within the U.S. to areas that are not prepared for that population increase. So this is not going to be the last that you'll hear of climate change news, I think in particular as temperatures continue to get hotter, which which they will, um, and climate continues to change, you're going to see more and more of this coverage. Um, there's also the Conference of the Parties meeting, which is the big international meeting that happens, um, and that's going to take place in Poland this next month in December. So keep an eye out for that and um, what kinds of agreements do and don't come out of meetings like that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Hi, this is Nicole from Mr. Gnome, and you are listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise, community radio for Boise and beyond. You're back on the Big Ten on Radio Boise, um, KRBX uh, 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. We're uh, back. We're talking about environmental issues today. We just got done with a very depressing story about climate change. Thanks, Jen. Yeah, th- well, this segment is also going to be a little depressing, but then Jackie's going to, she she told me that we need to bring it back up for the third segment, so we'll do that. For yeah, sure. Jackie likes to keep it cheery in this room, um, <laughs> so somebody has to balance out Jen. <laughs> well, I was just like, oh my gosh, I, people are going to be struggling by the end, so we got got it in positive. It is rough. Well, we're talking a lot about climate change in the first segment, and I think you can't talk about climate change and about solutions or responses to climate change without also talking about energy. Um, Those two are very much connected. Obviously, um, most climate scientists these days agree that climate change is being caused by the production of fossil fuels, the burning of fossil fuels, and the release of those greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, so things like coal and natural gas and petroleum. So people who are interested in mitigating climate change have to think about how can we transition away from fossil fuels. So there was also some really interesting energy stuff in the news over the past few weeks. Um, And a couple of things that caught my eye were that there were two reports that came out, one in the New York Times, uh, that suggested that we are seeing pretty dramatic increases in coal-fired power plants, the the building of coal-fired power plants 
in India and China. That's no surprise. We knew that those developing countries were going to be burning a lot more fossil fuels so that they could economically develop, but also in Japan. And I think that is a surprise for a lot of folks because, of course, Japan was an early signer of the Kyoto Protocol, has um, been very involved in international discussions about addressing climate change as a group of islands. They have a vested interest in making sure that sea levels don't rise too much. But I think in response to the Fukushima uh, reactors, melting down during the tsunami, they've really moved off of nuclear power and are increasingly building coal-fired power plants. So we may be reducing our reliance on coal here in the U.S., increasingly burning natural gas, um, but elsewhere in the world, we're seeing pretty drastic increases in coal. So I thought the Japan part was very interesting because uh, particularly in India and China have coal reserves, right? So they can produce it internally. Uh, Japan doesn't. Um, or at least doesn't have them. I mean, so these are things that now they're going to have to import. Um, and so I found that to be very interesting because they're they're basically switching their energy strategy to be more reliant externally. And historically, for a little World War II history for everybody in the room, historically, this has been a major issue for Japan. It was one of the, the key parts of their military strategy during World War II was trying to uh, secure access to oil reserves and coal and all this other kind of stuff. So I find it very interesting that they would now switch back to an energy strategy that makes them more reliant externally and not less reliant when a lot of the rest of the world is trying to do the opposite thing. Also technology, right? Like we kind of think of them as technologically advanced. And so it's not necessarily a direction that I would have expected um, in that terms as well. Yeah, it seems to, there seems to be this interesting pattern developing where you're having leaders like Abe who seem to sort of be environmentally forward thinking and who's really whose populations are demanding um, sort of environmental responsibility. Germany also comes to mind. And yet um, in the face of nuclear accidents like what happened in Fukushima, as they brought those nuclear plants online, they have not been able to ramp up their renewable resources as quickly as they would have liked. And so we're really seeing those countries falling back on these fossil fuel resources. And like you said, Luke, it's strange to see Japan going in on a fuel source that they're going to have to import. And Germany, who I think is understood to be worldwide sort of a leader for renewable energy, is actually importing a ton of natural gas and coal from abutting countries. So, um, you know, I think there's this level of sort of spoken commitment and politics, and then there's not wanting to have um, any dings in one's electricity supply, and it's a tough trade-off for a lot of these countries. Well, it's one of those things that we regularly talk about and makes politics and policy very complicated. I mean, is our election cycles create this uh, issue where we have to respond to short-term issues, and it's very hard to, to long-term plan. And I mean, it's it's a little bit more easy to, to see here in America where we're either on two, four, or six-year election cycles. There's really no incentives for policymakers to think beyond their term. And uh, as I was always told, the first rule of being a, uh, being an elected official is to get reelected. And so when you look at this, like I. Again, like it makes sense um, why they want to think long term and these kind of big and, and do this spoken, but it also makes sense why they would abandon that when it's oh wait, if electri- electricity uh, prices spike, I'm not going to get reelected, right? So why, uh, of course, they would abandon that. So I mean, I think it, it makes sense, but it's kind of cynical from maybe from my perspective to say that, and it's kind of you know a question of how do we ever get past this as long as we're holding on to those ideas and we can't do the long term planning because clearly all the, this requires very long term, intensive, decades long strategies, and they can't be fixed in a year or two. 
Which is why I think there's, you know, like people put some hope in things like the Paris Accords or the Kyoto Treaty. Like, well, now you're being held to, you know, someone else is or something else above you is trying to push you to not just look at the short term incentives and try to actually look farther down, you know, downstream. But clearly it's it's a challenge no matter what. I think on the other hand, what we're seeing around the world is what um, political scientist Roger Pilkey Jr calls the iron law of climate policy, which is that if you make things too painful for the average consumer, you're not going to be able to make the sorts of environmental changes you want to make. And we're seeing a really good example of that in France right now, for example, where there have been days and days of protests by uh, sort of everyday people in France who are feeling very pinched by Emmanuel Macron's policies to increase the price of petroleum, for example. So you have people like long haul truckers and commercial truck drivers um, out protesting. And interestingly, they're being joined sort of by everyday working class and middle class people who are increasingly feeling left behind, which is a story we're seeing around the world in industrialized and industrializing countries as that gap between the rich and poor is growing. I mean, the 2016 election here, I think you know, that, you know, we saw that, especially with some of the, the, the discussion of those who supported Trump in places like West Virginia and places, very similar type of discussions. Well, I think one of the difficult parts of climate change as, as an issue is that it's not one big problem. It's something that's very incremental and it's very small. And honestly, in your day-to-day lives, you might not even notice it. Um, it takes, you know, a very long-term lens to realize it's happening. But when you're talking about energy spikes, like you notice that, right? If you, you know, when we're talking about food insecurity and all these type of things. So I, I think it's very diff- easy for us to distance ourselves from the problem, but not, and but connect personally with the solutions that have to happen, right? So it's just kind of this very contradictory way of approaching all this um, that is very difficult. Uh, And by the way, I also want to uh, compliment my co-host on her pronunciation skills. Coming from somebody who's very bad at uh, doing so, Jen, you're doing an amazing job over there. Of saying climate change? Oh, no, of saying, uh, (laughs) of pronouncing uh, foreign leaders' names. Oh, yeah, thanks. Good. Well, uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit more in the third segment about some of the solutions that Jackie mentioned, the idea of social movements, for example, some of the proposals that are out on the table right now to actually address the problem beyond the next election cycle, a point you pointed out, Luke. Um, So folks, stay tuned. When you come back, we're going to make things a little more positive. Hi, this is Cecil Baldwin from Welcome to Night Vale. You're tuned in to Radio Boise, your source for music and public affairs programming in Boise and beyond. We're back on the Big Ten on Radio Boise, and uh, we've been talking about environmental issues. And uh, on the assistance of uh, Jackie, we're going to try to be a little bit more positive uh, and just not talk about how the world is ending um, and maybe talk about some real-life solutions of how people are trying to save it. Um, so, Jackie, I'm going to let you introduce this. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, you know, I think it's really easy to read these reports and get very down and just be like, there's nothing we can do. That We're just, you know... We're, we're in big trouble. And, and But there are people out there who are trying to make a difference, trying to push, even if it's a big hurdle to try to do something. Thinking about like when there are disagreements about the Paris Accords, a lot of a lo- you know cities being like, all right, well, we're going to step up and we're going to try to take action. And so we're seeing some interesting different levels of government and different types of, of government entities trying to make a difference here. The military has been quite on the forefront of trying to address climate change for quite a while. 
file, which is interesting and something that maybe a lot of people don't recognize. Yeah, that was, I was thinking, I came up with five things that I think uh, we have to be positive about or that we can be optimistic about when it comes to addressing climate change. And local action was definitely one of them. Um, Those of you who are following local politics, maybe you've seen that the city of Boise has pledged to be carbon free in terms of their, um, the consumption of electricity in their buildings by 2040. And so they're aggressively pursuing that goal. I think a lot of cities have interesting climate goals, which is great. Also, um, the second or the the second thing I think that's optimistic is uh, the recent spate of elections. So there, uh, some of the folks that were just elected. Uh, here in this month, earlier this month, um, are introducing really interesting climate policy ideas and maybe got elected on those ideas, which I think is interesting. So Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, she actually has a climate platform. She wants for there to be a Green New Deal so that we are producing uh, more renewable energy, but also paying attention to things like public health and jobs. So it's, like you were saying, Luke, a much more holistic platform addressing a lot of these problems all at once. And then I think there's exciting stuff happening in the climate movement, um, in the grassroots and also with the elite. So on the left, of course, there's the 350.org. Um, there's the Sunrise Movement, which is a, a bunch of young people, millennials and younger, who are getting together to think about how to elect people into office who are going to care about climate change, which is really exciting. And then this, um, some of your comments earlier made me think about um, this group called the Eco Modernists, and they're really interested in what's called clumsy policy solutions. So they really understand this iron law of climate policy that you can't make things too painful for people or they won't support it. Like a big gas tax is never going to go anywhere. But we could try a really small gas tax. That's one idea they have. Um, And that maybe that would allow us to make some strategic investments Mm -hmm. as a country, which I think is a really good idea. Well, and I mean, just the the breadth of climate change is something that we've never dealt with before. Yeah. I mean, it's just this global problem. And we were talking about earlier that there's this essay that's maybe a decade old old now called The Death of Environmentalism. And generally the argument is that the former environmental movement or the traditional one isn't really capable of dealing with a global environmental problems of climate change in the modern era. So it needs to die and go away. But like, I don't. I mean, it's a very interesting argument, but at the same time, like the history of every other environmental problem that we've solved has started the grassroots level, mm-hmm. right? They've started by coming up with these local solutions that went, then we've expanded and grown up and that we've put at federal level. I mean, really, um, our local and state governments are, are the de- laboratories of democracy. This is where all this mm-hmm. experimentation goes. And I mean, honestly, this is where some of the most innovative policy solutions across a gambit of problems, this is where we've come up with them. So, I mean, I, I think those local areas, that subnational policy is really where the exciting stuff's happening because we may truthfully never come up with one federal strategy for this. I mean, we certainly haven't come up with a federal strategy for energy and all this other stuff. So, I mean, I think the, the local stuff is really interesting as well. And and we have made improvements in various environmental elements, right? Like, definitely we have some big issues, but there was positive news about the ozone um, recently that we've actually made progress in closing some of those ozone holes, which for those of us who were in like elementary school in the 90s was like, it was a big deal with yeah. the ozone. Um, and I mean, cleaning up rivers and things, and like we've got plenty of pollution problems still. But we have seen that local action can make a difference. I think the eco-modernists would support that exactly. And they would say that actually local solutions are probably really the only way forward because those are the ones that are going to get the most political traction in our currently polarized environment.
The fifth thing I want to say is that there's actually a climate movement on the right as well. So there is a um, climate legislative group. Um, it's not grassroots. It's the opposite. It's actually elite thinkers on the right. So people from previous presidential administrations, um, conservative administrations who are coming together and their preferred policy solution is called a cap and dividend. And they really like this solution because it would start to cap um, our reliance on fossil fuels. But then any money that was accrued from a result of that, that those small taxes that were levied would be returned to everyday citizens, similar to what you might see in Alaska, for example, where um, they often split their some of the fossil fuel profits among citizens there. So they um, think this that this fits our current populist movement where we're very concerned with folks on Main Street, and it might actually get us towards having a solution for climate change. Luke and I have talked quite a bit about like the conservation movement within the Republican and in the right, the Republican Party, and and there you would have a lot. You have a lot of concerns about climate change as well, right? Like um, and be, having access to our our wildlands and our wildlife, and and so yeah, it makes a lot of sense that we would also see maybe some alignment between conservationists and and trying to address climate change. Yeah, and I think that's that's hard for some on the right. Um, identifying themselves as environmentalists. It's right? hard for most on the right. Yeah, yeah. And even though that they hold a lot of those. And again, I, you know, I grew up in Mississippi and I know tons of, and of cousins and uncles that love hunting and fishing and they hold the environmental green values at heart and you would recognize it, but they would they would be upset if you called them an environment, like a tree hugger, right? Which is I mean, why I use the word conservationalist, yeah. which yeah, they yeah. much prefer. Yeah. yeah, and so I think that's a, you know, very difficult thing. But I, I mean, I think to, the positive thing to, to point out here is that people are now thinking about this and trying to adapt solutions because, I, I mean, it was not that long ago. I would venture to say, I mean, 10 years ago, I mean, um, maybe even five years ago, that people weren't really worried about climate change as a problem, didn't even recognize it as a problem, and certainly weren't trying to think of solutions. But at least now... I mean, except for, I would say, a very small portion of our, our, our population, I mean, the majority of people are concerned about it, are trying to think of ways to solve it. So, I mean, I think that is positive news. And there is now a bipartisan bipartisan policy solution caucus in Congress, and then the first thing they want to work on is climate change and environmental issues. So, I mean, there is, uh, we've got a lot going on at the grassroots level, but there is some elite level interest in trying to address this as well. Yeah, and those of us who study policy know that it can take years for some of those policy solutions to sort of get formulated and to get support and to actually appear. And to your comment, Luke, I mean, An Inconvenient Truth only came out in 2007. Whatever you think of Al Gore, that really forced climate change into the public consciousness. So we're 10 years later. We know that change is really slow, um, but we are starting to see much more consciousness. I think we should say that um, the Trump administration um, sort of um, undercut its own government's report around climate change and that they have not been supportive of thinking of climate change as something that's human caused or that would require any action on our part. Quite quite the opposite. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge that, that, that that is one place where sort of national leadership is lacking. But I think there are these other areas that, that seem really positive. Well, and certainly uh, for those of us that, that study the federal system knows that when the national government retreats, I mean, there's the states and local governments begin to 
fill that void void and i think that's a lot of what we're seeing and there's i mean research that goes back you know a decade or a decade and a half and so that makes that argument that the the federal government hasn't occupied this space of dealing with things like energy and so the the states have really stepped up and do that and i I think we're just seeing more of that now more of that activity going on and we're definitely paying more attention to it so even if the trump administration decides not to solve this problem i think there's other people that are willing to try yeah that train has left the station either way well, that's your dose of good news amid a dark, dark sky of climate sadness for today. You've been listening to The Big Tent. I hope you'll join us next week, and we'll talk to you then.